0: Cools. I'm John Ratanti and this is My Investing Life, where I interview the investors I admire most to learn about their investment process and philosophy. Today, I'm speaking with Sean Emery of Avery & Company. Sean is the founder and chief investment officer at Avery. He's also one of the best investors to follow on Twitter, period. Uh, and you should check out his blog, which you can sh- sign up for at avery.xyz. Make sure you sign up up for his earnings quick takes that he sends out via email. They are incredible. Um, So let's learn about Sean's investment process and philosophy and some of his favorite stocks. Sean, welcome to the show. How are you doing, John? I'm doing really, really well. We're thrilled to have you. So, Sean, tell us about Avery.
1: Yeah, uh, I guess that's a good place to start. So Avery is uh, born in Miami, Florida. I was also born in Miami, Florida, so that makes sense. We're about five years old. We run $350 million of assets. Uh, Our strategy, our our business was built around kind of independent research and putting those into our strategy. Uh, We run high conviction uh, strategies. So uh, anything from an equity to kind of a multi-asset portfolio, but our bread and butter is our high conviction equity portfolio. We have kind of this context of uh, uh, private equity like investment or or mindset in the public markets. Um, So that's kind of a nutshell of us. Uh, there's five of us here in Miami where we're kind of a high um, octane team in terms of doing a lot uh, for a very select few of, uh, of, of our investor base. Uh, and that's really it. That's kind of the high level view of Avery.
0: I, I, I love it. And I was just telling you uh, offline a second ago how much I love Miami as well. So um, what <laughs> is your investment philosophy and what types of businesses do you like to buy stock in? Sure. Um, yeah, I think stepping
1: back and thinking about uh, where we land on the investment uh, curve, we think we have this research mission, which is called discovering value in a world of innovative growth. And, and w- when I say that, I mean the, the, the world is kind of bifurcated between uh, value and growth. And what we try to do is really step back and look at each company individually and, and ask ourselves, kind of, is there value left in this, in, in this investment? And ultimately, what that means is whether a company is growing at 80% or a company that is not growing at all and actually maybe potentially declining, um, is there value left in that investment? And that leads us to two pillars. One is uh, structural growth stories. And then the other side of that coin is transformation stories. And just to kind of decompose that a little bit, structural growth stories are really what we call innovation blocks. So we sit back and we ask ourselves questions around the world, where it's headed, kind of why am I sitting on a street corner, And I'm calling 7777 and and I'm waiting for someone to pick me up in a a yellow taxi. I've never met the person. I don't know their rankings or anything like that. And all of a sudden, fast forward 15 years uh, after that idea, we're here kind of obviously calling Ubers and and things like that. Now, those were questions left to be answered. And there was this evolution of technology that led to that. Um, So structural growth stories today, when we think about them, are things like the shift to a cashless society, healthcare automation. And kind of the list goes on. We have about 10 that we're tracking today. On the other side is transformation stories. And again, that's more around companies that are looking to unlock value through some form of transformation. And one good example of that that was successful for us was Chipotle like four or five years ago, where there was a successful transformation at the C-suite where we went from founder-led to not founder-led and someone that had executed at a high scale at Taco Bell. So that was Brian Nickel. And that was a transformation where they shared up the supply chain, shared up some of the problems, and then expanded the the menu and the platform itself. So we think those are two kind of uh, areas that we want to spend most of our time in from a high level. So structural growth stories, transformation stories, I think that really best
0: defines uh, where we put our investment effort. I love that. I like how you bifurcate the portfolio. I also love the sort of overarching philosophy of looking for value in an innovative growth world. Um, so, yeah, love that. So you just talked about your investing philosophy. Can you tell us a little bit about your portfolio management philosophy and strategy? How many stocks do you typically own in a strategy? What's position, typical position sizing? Do you hold cash? Those types of things.
1: Yeah, no, these are good questions. We get this a lot. Um, so in general, portfolio ma- from a portfolio management perspective, so we run a strategy called Premier Growth. Um, and this is eight to 25 holdings. Uh, we tend to live somewhere in between that. Um, and in a world of kind of uh, thousands of securities, it allows us to kind of be very, very picky in terms of what we own. Um, the sizing of our positions, again, we, we try to take this equal weight mindset where we're trying to build to equal weight. And, and sometimes that means securities run into equal weight. So just as a sign of example, uh, 10 holdings, in a sense would be 10% each. Um, Generally speaking, we're running around kind of seven to 12% uh, positions at what we would call like their mature state. Um, And we would scale that down from let's say 15, 16, 17 down back to 12 uh, as it hits that kind of upper bound. In addition, as we kind of build our positions, uh, we start at either a half or we use put options a lot in our portfolio where we sell put options to build our positions. And that allows us to obviously lower the cost base originally um, to a level that is anywhere from 5, 10, 15% below uh, that current price. So, again, in a, in a period where potentially volatility is high, put option selling makes a lot of sense. Uh, outside of that, uh, when kind of there's a lot of complacency, it's not as attractive. Um, but again, at a high level, we're trying to run this strategy at equal weight. And, and really, the, the rationale behind that is trying to remove kind of our internal bias of, while we may have valuation as kind of the guiding principle, and many do in terms of providing weights, the, the real question there is looking internally and asking yourselves, is there bias in your valuation? Um, and is there bias in your growth metrics in terms of your, your, what you're putting on someone like a PayPal versus someone that is going through a transformation? Um, so to remove all that, we try to take this equal weight mindset and remove the biases
0: uh, in terms of portfolio construction. I love that. How do you think about risk management in a concentrated portfolio?
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the, the, the biggest kind of uh, from the outside looking in is uh, a lot of people look at tracking error in terms of like uh, how, how much you uh, track relative to markets. And, and the beauty of our strategy is we don't track relative to markets. And that makes me feel better internally, uh, specifically in some years Um, but in general, it it allows us to step away from the markets and really think about the underlying holdings themselves. Um, uh, I don't think we've had one year where we've been within 10% of the market um, for good or for worse. Uh, And ultimately what uh, our investors are doing is investing in us and and actually a subset of of the market and in these companies. The way we think about kind of risk is really at the company level. Um, Is this management team, the business, the product, the margins, are all those sustainable so we do take kind of uh, antidote of, let's say, Warren Buffett and kind of uh, Ben Graham in terms of the economic moat concept, where we are looking for companies that are, are trying to build a moat, either have kind of a dominant moat today, or ones that are, again, building uh, a moat through time. Um, generally speaking, our best investments have come through uh, the evolution of the moat, uh, where the moat doesn't exist in kind of a way that we all think of moats, uh, where it's, it's small, but kind of blossoming like a flower. And ultimately, that's what we're looking for. A good example of that was uh, Square's Cash App, right? Cash App itself, early days, had 2 million users. But once you get to 40 million users, now you have real network effects that are taking place, uh, specifically when it's uh, primarily a domestic uh, product. Um, Before that, 2 million, there was the ambition of a moat, but it wasn't there yet. But then you had the core seller business that was, uh, again, something that investors and the company could lean on um, as kind of this uh, 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 product portfolio that they could uh, essentially uh, strip cash flow on and reinvest back in a cash app. But, anyways, again, from a risk management standpoint, we use economic moats as kind of that form of, of safety. Yeah. And, like
0: you said, if you can find them sort of pre-modey, like an emerging moat, sometimes right. there's some, some big gains to be had there. Um, how large is your watch list or your on-deck de- on list? In other words, does Avery and Company have a list of companies that it has done thorough research on and that you like, but you just have not yet bought the stock because you haven't seen that value yet? Um, if Do you have that list? And if so, how large is that list?
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we, we have a long list for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the list really is, is uh, formulated due to kind of our process. And we, we haven't necessarily discussed like the details in terms of the process, but we have... A process that we have discovery, follow focus, um, and then approved or not approved, right? So discovery is really companies that enter our aperture, and we're looking for companies that either are in those structural growth categories and or transformation stories, and we don't know really anything about the company. Um, Potentially, we know the product. Maybe we've used it ourselves as consumers um, maybe we passed a billboard and we saw something, maybe they went IPO and we watched the roadshow, things like that. That's how we enter the discovery phase. From there, we go to, to the follow phase and the follow phase is now we're really trying to understand, uh, all the details around this company. Um, we're following, uh, product announcements. We're following all the, the kind of more tangible things to a business outside of the markets, Uh, and really trying to grasp and and, and understand management and product. I mean, ultimately, that's what we're trying to do there. So those two lists are are fairly long, right? These are what we would consider watch lists. Now, the focus phase is really where we take it to the next level, where we are trying to understand whether there is a moat developing or it's been developed, uh, there's sustainability to this company. Here's a management team that we do believe can execute over time. Uh, And from there, we take it through our focus phase, which is a pretty large and intensive uh, process of trying to understand essentially everything that we possibly can of the company and either approve it or not approve it. Most uh, non-approvals are valuation-based, and that is probably, I would say, 90% of the story. And in some cases, we're going through our focus phase, and all of a sudden, uh, the company is no longer as attractive as it once seemed. Uh, and maybe that's management, and we've as we've gone through the process of understanding the project's evolution, um, we step back and we say, "You know what uh, execution here for the last decade has actually been pretty subpar. Um, some of its competitors have moved at a quicker pace, and you start to realize that over time throughout the, the analysis uh, and that puts it in kind of this disapproval list that uh, you you try to articulate what the problem was and and potentially later on they solve it right um, And that's kind of the list. So when you kind of bunch all those together, you have anywhere from like 85 companies that are sitting uh, kind of in one of these uh, uh, verticals of discovery, follow, and focus. Uh, And then there's a bunch of approved companies. And that comes in handy during times of like March of 2020. I think we we bought like five companies in in March of 2020. And, And again, we're not trying to like time anything per se, but... Generally speaking, we had a large approved list, and very rarely do you get those uh, type of moves. And again, we thought it was going to take years and and, and multi year to kind of recoup any of those. Um, but obviously, we all know what happened. Uh, but beside that point, is having that approved list, I think, is pretty important to have um, where valuation is the only concern.
0: That's. I mean, I love for a five-year-old firm, you already have so many frameworks in, in place and processes in place, um, and they seem so well thought out. I, I, I'm really, really fascinated by your research process. So I want to dive in just a bit more. Do you have assigned companies that you follow, or do you all kind of follow them equally? Are you generalists? Are you specialists? And um, uh, how do you work yeah, as a team? Do you, do you meet regularly um, to, to have stock pitches? Like, what does it look like as a team?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So the, uh, generally speaking, the, uh, how we think about our coverage is generalist. Um, <clears throat> the guiding principles are those, are those two uh, verticals or pillars. So <clears throat> structural growth being one of them and underneath that are um, 10 uh, innovation blocks. So that's really the guiding principles. Now, do we um, uh, provide kind of who's gonna cover what? So, so for example, I have a pretty good understanding of FinTech and shift to a cashless society. Chris Fuentes has m- maybe much more understanding of another category, so we'll split there. But, but generally speaking, we are covering everything together. Um, and anything that goes in the portfolio, we all have to understand. Um, the, we meet every Friday um, from a uh, 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 communication standpoint of uh, what new IPOs came to market, any kind of findings there, uh, any new details around companies we are following in or competitors that we're following um, and then any new additions to the discovery follow focus. Uh, and that's ultimately the, the, the rate that we move at. We're also, we believe in continuous kind of analysis. And so we do have Slack uh, and we're continuously uh, providing data and research and data and research daily on kind of findings, key findings that we, we see from either it's a product announcement of a company we're following uh, or investing in. And ultimately we, we believe in that continuous approach. Uh, So we're always communicating, um, and we take that generalist approach where we all understand everything uh, together. Um, And the beauty and the the reason we can do this is when you invest in 8 to 25 companies, that's why we can do it. If we had a a portfolio of 100 securities, um, we'd have to completely dice this thing up into huge pizza slices for sure.
0: Do you incorporate the macro environment into your research process at all?
1: Yeah. I mean, yes and no. So we, we obviously uh, are very much macro aware um, and macro will have implications on things. Um, so obviously, if we are looking at something like a Zillow, the housing market is pretty important um, to the direction of Zillow. Now, if we step back and, and, and think about our core idea and, and principles is we truly are long-term investors and what that ultimately means is we believe investing through these cycles, um, through these kind of uh, macro cycles and not everything's going to work at all times. And if you try to just simply time, and, and again, there's some investors that try to do that and that's fine. Um, for us, it's, it's, we understand the reason why Apple and Netflix and, and many of these other kind of very successful investments that have happened for decades uh, these were decade-long investments that moved and pushed through multiple cycles of all types. Uh, the, all types of crises occurred, right? Everything from Russia um, and Argentina and Japan in the in the early '90s, all the way to the last like 10, 15 years, where a housing crisis and and, and so on. I mean, a good example. Look at um, Blackstone; it's been one of the better investments for a long time now, um, and they probably peaked. Probably one of the worst purchases ever was Hilton, but it also then became one of their best investments, arguably in the history of real estate. Uh, and they bought that in 2006, uh, 2006, 2007. So uh, for us, macro is, is really, really important. But our goal is to find something that's structural in nature and long-term in nature um, and try to invest through those cycles. Again, it could be tough at some, at some moments where macro is going against you. And I get it. Uh, but the reality is, is, is we're trying to find good companies for, for the long term.
0: How do you analyze corporate management? In other words, what are you looking for in a CEO and their team? Yeah, it, I mean,
1: that's obviously super important. I know there's this generalized concept um, in the world around um, uh, founder-led companies. And, and generally speaking, we do touch and invest in a lot of founder-led companies, and the rat, I think it's more about the rationale than them being founders. Um, and really the question there is when we look for a, a management team, we're looking for execution. Um, that's part of the the thought processor. And it's a checklist for sure. Um, but execution um, to a point, right? So, uh, I mean, I'm going to go back to uh, the, the well for, for one of the companies Chipotle Um you have to assume obviously over uh, multiple decades that the founders there were very strong. They, they executed incredibly well, but potentially it comes to a point where um, the world's changing. Um, They potentially are stubborn in, in uh, kind of the world's changing and, and they're too stubborn to change with it. Um, Or there's an issue out there that they simply don't have the experience because they've just been one way. I mean, going from, 200 locations to 2000 locations is a, is a pretty big difference specifically when you're trying to source locally. Um, that sounds like a pretty big, uh, uh, kind of, uh, experience gap that you, you have to build through time, um, and potentially bringing somebody in from the outside makes some sense. So we're looking for execution, historical execution, and kind of recent execution. You know, there's something about the way, uh, sometimes a, a, um, a, CEO speaks about their business. And again, it could be a CEO, non-founder, um, or uh, and it's really around their, their demeanor and how they communicate things. We think the, the faster, we, we've seen a lot of times, Carvana is like a pretty good example where Ernie Garcia speaks incredibly fast about his business. And our biggest takeaway there is that he completely understands his business in and out. Um, and he's able to articulate it in a pretty quick way. And, and again, that may not be, uh, widespread in terms of using that as a gauge, but it's those little habits that we think um, or predictors that we think are, are, are pretty valuable um, and are more of a positive than a negative. Um, I think that's the best way to define that. Now, there's other things like alignment, uh, whether it's uh, incentives, um, whether it's um, uh, where have they've come from in terms of their, their true passions. Um, so when we're thinking about a management team, it's really around historical execution. It's their demeanor and understanding of the business. It's their ability to hire. I think, uh, Jack Dorsey does a really good job at hiring, uh, over the last decade. I mean, he's more of a visionary, everyone underneath them, or just is the army. Um, and they've done a wonderful job. Um, clearly if you just, uh, looked into the history books of things that happened at PayPal and and kind of how all of that uh, shot out into the world and so many companies blossomed because of uh, ex-PayPal employees. Um, trying to understand kind of some of the behavior traits that happened there. Um, I, I think those are good uh, uh, things that we take away and, and try to use in terms of management analysis, legal stuff. So we run back on checks and stuff like that, but those are more uh, standard in nature for us. Um, so anyways, that, that's kind of it. We're, we're looking for someone that knows how to execute and execute at scale and, ha- and is also a visionary and or has the, the, the wherewithal to separate that between who's, who's the execution individual at this company and who's the visionary.
0: How do you think about valuation? Are you building uh, models and, and discounting cash flows? Or are you thinking about valuation using other methods and tools?
1: Yeah, no, valuation is, is pretty important. Um, so we take a pretty strict approach to valuation. <clears throat> we we basically try to uh, take an approach where we try to size the market, uh, obviously, and from there, we move into kind of market share. Um, so whether it's Planet Fitness or someone else, uh, where we're, again, trying to understand how big is this market tangibly, like like realistic uh, sizing, Um trying to carve out kind of what kind of share can they take. That will give us a pretty good uh, revenue uh, area. Then we're trying to understand what their steady state margin profile can look like. And generally speaking, what you see throughout history is that margins tend to repeat themselves across various industries. They level out at some sort of competitive uh, level. Um, And depending whether it's software or hardware or product-based or or cyclical or non-cyclical or commodity versus not, um, you, you, you can find some pretty strong parallels. From there, we try to understand um, or, or we apply a multiple and our multiples are anywhere from 10 to 15 times. And that's what we call a mature or steady state of this business. So this is the size of the business revenue and margins where growth is essentially non-existent anymore. So I think Oracle's and IBM's and Microsoft like 15, or 10 years ago and Apple even like seven years ago, um, and then the list goes on in terms of big banks and, and some of the others where that 10 to 15 multiple is where these things tend to hover. It's also the reciprocal of that is 10 is 10, right? So 10% earnings yield. Um, so that's essentially your earnings um, that you would be generating or income or however they pay it out at, at maturity. So that's how we think about valuation. So we're, we're whatever that multiple times that um, uh, mature margin, revenue, and, and operating income. That's ultimately what we think the valuation of that company is. And then we uh, ask ourselves kind of, is this a, uh, a return that is acceptable within our portfolios?
0: Awesome. Awesome. Um, last question before we start talking about stocks. What would cause you to trim a position versus selling out of a position altogether?
1: Yeah. Um, the number one thing for us, so when, when you're only investing in a couple of companies, you're pretty strict in terms of the entry. <clears throat> so the exit is also in, in, by that nature, very strict as well. It all comes down to visibility. So we, we, we want to have visibility in any of our companies, um, meaning whatever the driver of the business is, we have decent visibility about that driver. Um, and... That could be, I mean, the COVID was like the ultimate uh, visibility uh, fog cloud that you could ex- that happen, right? Where companies literally shut down their business uh, in some cases. <clears throat> and we had a couple where literally their, their whole operations are essentially shut down for a month. Um, and ultimately what that means is there's no visibility. Um, and then assuming you have any sort of debt at all in the future um, or any other liability that's coming up. Um, that lack of visibility I think is that main uh, driver of any sort of uh, sale at all from a kind of trim or non-trim for us that we have like what we call a heck yes, heck no approach. So it's either in or it's out essentially. Um, And ultimately where valuation and also visibility come into hand, that's kind of how we're judging whether like we have this heck yes or heck no within this, this company. So again, when visibility is non-existent uh, for us, that is a uh, not a heck yes, so therefore it's a no uh, in our portfolios. And then typically in those, if visibility clears, then generally we are right back in. And again, whether uh, it's lost value, hasn't lost value, it doesn't necessarily matter because uh, for us, again, is the the biggest risk in a portfolio is material loss of value, where uh, again, you have a debt coming due in, in a year and you can't pay that debt um, that 's where uh, you essentially have a permanent loss of
0: value, so
1: that 's ultimately what we 're trying to avoid
0: heck, yes or heck, no decisions that makes it that makes it pretty uh easy and straightforward so let 's talk about some stocks in your portfolio. What is your investment thesis in Alphabet, the parent company of Google?
1: yeah, so uh, from it, when you when you step back and you look at like uh, alphabet and and some of the others that are are very uh similar in nature in terms of the market they're targeting i think it's it's really around eyeballs it's really around the uh, the entryway into uh all the questions we all have um and i think from a standpoint of alphabet is the size of that digital ads market so that's their core competency today that's not necessarily our our core thesis we think they have a stranglehold on digital ads, obviously because of my first point, which is they are the place we all go to, to get answers. Um, that market itself is roughly uh, like $400 billion today to grow uh, another 200 billion globally uh, over the next several years to roughly 600 billion um, with more uh, eyeballs and and more space in terms of questions in the world and, and uh, indexing all that, which means more ad space, which means more uh, potential market share there. But beyond just the core ads business, which again we think has a dominant moat uh, around that that business, is really everything else, which is productivity. We think uh, uh, COVID accelerated their focus on productivity. Before, I think Gmail and some of the other products in their portfolio of productivity was kind of broken, and and we could all kind of feel that um, there was really no effort being done to kind of put this all together. Um, they finally have started to try to think about how do they make a holistic kind of uh, centralized place for people to not only ask their questions, but to start their day in their work life. Um, And that's uh, obviously workspace. Now, beyond that, you have Google cloud. And again, I think what we've seen over the last um, probably several years is while Amazon AWS is first to market. And in many ways, the bellwether, um, what you're seeing is a, uh, uh, Strategy around multi-cloud, so more vendors are seeking multi-kind of uh, whether it's either purely for backup and or to not have vendor lock-in. They're looking to be in Azure, they're looking to be in 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 Google Cloud, and they're looking to be in Amazon. There's also as Amazon continues to encroach into new markets, there's this natural uh, hesitation to want to work with uh, AWS to begin with. Now, in addition to kind of like uh, uh, um, just cloud is their analytics capabilities. So we all know uh, Google has some of the best kind of machine learning and, and, and uh, artificial intelligence and kind of indexing. I think uh, the best way to, to frame this is go onto to Gmail, go on to Outlook, type in search for something uh, for the same thing. And I, and I bet uh, Google, you'll find it much faster. Uh, and it makes sense. They they run a search engine um, for the whole world. Um, and so their index, index capabilities. So if the future is around analytics, data, um, I, I think you have to uh, uh, think about a Google's cloud division. And then Waymo is the last part of this equation where I think um, autonomous vehicles and transportation, obviously transportation is a massive market. Uh, a, a, autonomy is very horizontal in nature. So it doesn't necessarily have to just cover uh, a specific form of transportation, uh, but it's more the capabilities of understanding where something is going and what to do. But my point uh, around this concept is uh, Google or Alphabet is currently viewed as uh, the, the ads business, but I think uh, you have to think uh, uh, across the other aperture of, of everything else they do. Um, uh, uh, on top of that, the, the cash position they have and, and the, the strength of the balance sheet, and then the valuation from our standpoint. Is very attractive um, from given all the, the potential opportunities that they have. So I know there's a lot there, but uh, trying to wrap that all together into one, I think is a, a really strong opportunity for um, this kind of combination of, of uh,
0: moat plus valuation uh, is pretty interesting. That was that was uh, wonderful, and um, I I agree. So similar um, business, at least at least for the advertising business. What is your investment thesis in Facebook?
1: Yeah, yeah. Very similar. And they're both facing the same kind of like headwinds, which is what I think what's creating the opportunity or has created the opportunity. Um, there it's again, we, we, we know the, the ads businesses will continue to be strong. Um, and that that's, that's kind of like uh, that. That's what they'll lean on alphabet and, and Facebook will lean on that. Um, and that, that's the good thing now beyond that. And it's they kind of work in t- uh, tandem for Facebook is commerce and payments. Um, so I think when you when you step back and you think about uh, the journey of the future of commerce, I think, <clears throat> where's the front doors happening? Where's the online digital department, not department stores, but malls? Where's our attention gravitated? I mean, historically, the mall was a place where uh, uh, families and kids and kids would uh, spend and entertain themselves uh, and then spend money uh, uh, sometimes, right? Um, and what you're seeing in, in our belief is that Instagram uh, will become the uh, online mall where a lot of our time and attention is sitting on this platform. Uh, visuals are beautiful. I mean, when you walk through a mall, I mean, their whole goal is obviously to capture your attention as well. So there's, there's synergies between kind of that concept between a physical mall and a digital mall. And I think uh, uh, Instagram does a, a really good job at kind of blending social and commerce potential. Now, the beauty of of Instagram and even Facebook, the the core platform, is that they don't have to get it right the first time. Um, They can continue to iterate, iterate, iterate until they kind of crack that code in terms of truly having commerce take place on the platform. Um, And I think businesses, in addition to the consumers, like it. I mean, I personally like having a feed where Nike is putting cool ads on my feed. And I think those shoes are cool. Um, and that experience for me is much better than random ads on my platform. Um, and again, when you, when you when you think of Facebook, I think the opportunity is around commerce and, and then payments. Uh, we'll see how quickly the adoption happens there or if at all. Uh, but if they can combine payments or, or like top of funnel uh, engagement with commerce capabilities plus payments, I think that's powerful. Combine that with Oculus and WhatsApp, WhatsApp Business, uh, their app downloads are on fire. Um, and it's kind of like parabolic. It's pretty shocking to see just how, how fast the WhatsApp business adoption has been recently. Um, and then again, Oculus. I think Oculus is the leader in the space. And Facebook is quietly acquiring a ton of uh, publishers and studios um, that are creating things in in um, VR. Um, so there's the metaverse concept. Um we can go there, but, but in a, like, for the most part, it's really just around what are they doing today and kind of the foreseeable future. Uh, beyond that, I think, again, they're well-positioned for that. Everyone has an uh, avatar, right? Their own little avatar, and they have 3 billion users. So they're well-positioned to create a community outside of kind of the 2D communities that we live in today. Um, so that's really around Facebook.
0: Both of these um, theses, you know, you have two companies. They have this core business, like you said, that's just wide moat durable. They use those cash flows and they redirect them into all of these other lines of business. And so you have these two companies, Alphabet and Facebook, based on what you've just told me, that have multiple levers they can pull, multiple avenues of growth, multiple lines of business, plus those huge balance sheets and those wide moats. And then you said the valuations are compelling as well. So um, how do you, though, how do you incorporate regulatory risk into your analysis with Google and Facebook? Yeah,
1: I mean, that's like the, the big question is, is around regulatory. And <clears throat> I guess the way we think about it is kind of what are the potential outcomes? And like, depending on the outcome, what is uh, the eventual outcome of that, right, in terms of the financial? Um, and when you really start to decompose that, uh, I think the best way to frame it is <clears throat> if you break them up. Now you unlock potentially one uh, each uh, individual company's ability to uh, perform on their own. Think eBay, PayPal. Like I think both, both of them are doing better uh, without each other. Um, and then there's historical examples of that as well, uh, where again, what is Instagram worth all by itself? What is Oculus now worth all by itself? If, if we're truly talking about VR, AR, and, and Oculus, and I mean, uh, and, and metaverse type concepts and gaming and, and many other of these capabilities. Um, same with uh, Google. And, and again, you would have to try to uh, understand which part of these companies would go together, right? Does YouTube and, and um, Google search go together or does YouTube and, um, and, and cloud go together or something like that? Or are they all broken up? But either way, I think many of these companies because of the conglomerate kind of discount, um, you, you don't really, they're not being rewarded if you did like a sum of the parts for all of these businesses. I think a breakup actually unlocks uh, material value across all of these and also unlocks potential creativity. That wasn't uh, that it's kind of there, but again, we've seen historically where it's more of a, uh, a copy than the innovator um, and whether that brings like kind of that in- innovator mentality to something like uh, Instagram or, or WhatsApp. Now, in addition to that, the flip side of that is that they kind of clamp down and put pressure on kind of these platform uh, companies where I think that would ultimately uh, further entrench their uh, moat status in terms of uh, the the difficulty of someone coming up and and kind of creating uh, something that can compete directly with them because of we've seen it in the banking system, and it took it's taken decades to have somebody kind of come underneath um, and try to create uh, fintech type of uh, economies. Um, outside of the big banks. Um, so again, when you think of the regulatory risk for the alphabets of the world, the Facebooks of the world, I think the best way to think about it is the outcomes. And I think either way, um, the outcomes uh, actually favor the incumbent in, in many ways uh, and, and, or, and/ or the sum of the parts in terms of valuation. So that's ultimately how we think about it. Fines, I mean, look, their balance sheets are war chests um so we've seen fines historically and then lastly is precedent we've seen microsoft like oh, oh, two decades ago and the outcome of that was uh, many years of kind of litigation and 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 uh and um like just communications in terms of potential breakups or not or monopoly or not monopoly and ultimately throughout that time uh, uh, microsoft as a president was up over a thousand percent during that time um, so anyways, my point, uh, for all this is we think uh, regulatory risk is, is a risk, but also overblown in terms of the context of an investment. So,
0: yeah, you either get the regulatory capture and that cements their competitive position, or you get a, some of the parts breakup maybe, and that un- unleashes value. So, um, video games are one of the industries I talk about a lot on Motley Fool Live, because I have this idea, been talking about it for about a year and a half now that, that video games and other virtual worlds are going to become the new third place where people go to spend their time and their money. So uh, please share your investment thesis on electronic arts, EA.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. so I, I agree uh, conceptually with that idea. Uh, it may not be as widespread as uh, <clears throat> kind of traditional gaming uh, in terms of the the amount of people, but I do think the time spent will be pretty large um, because those that will be dedicated to a third world, I think will be incredibly dedicated. Um, and we've seen that in, in other areas. Um, social media is probably a pretty good example just in like the 2d world. Um, <clears throat> but for electronic arts um, again, we think gaming is becoming more social in nature, more connected in nature. Um, Cross console is, is just uh, uh, allowing these networks to now communicate Uh, and cross-device and cross-country, and uh, again, the intersection of kind of people and games and engagement, I think, is pretty powerful. Now, EA, from just a pure valuation standpoint, is incredibly attractive. Uh, Financially, the war chest is attractive, but we also like the combination of original content, like Apex Legends and Battlefield, um, along with the licensed content with the the, uh, FIFA and Madden and some of the others that come with it. Now, recently, they've made a couple acquisitions to focus more on mobile. Uh, Historically, they hadn't done a great job on mobile. Part of that, I think, is because of the the type of content they had. Um, But part of that, I I do believe, is just execution. Um, So over over the last uh, couple of years now, they've made a series of acquisitions to try and obviously buy uh, best in breed sports mobile games um, and probably going to use some of those best practices for things like Madden and FIFA um, and maybe some other games that they come out with. Uh, I know they've highlighted golf, and they also have highlighted uh, um, college football, which I'll be excited about. Um, so again, we love the combination of, of licensed content and published or, or original content uh, that's different from some of the others. We think that that licensed content is more of an annuity than it is anything else. And those ecosystems are massive. Um, so we also think uh, there's that risk of obviously. The, uh, the partnership with, let's say, the NFL or, or, or soccer would potentially break at some point. But we do think those as those networks become bigger and entrench themselves across consoles and such, that's going to make it more difficult to rip those from the original publisher, assuming there's no uh, real setback in terms of the quality of these games. So we like the valuation plus just the, the execution that they've, they've had here in the last um, year and a half.
0: Awesome. So one of our favorite uh, companies at the Motley Fool is Fiverr. So what is your investment thesis there?
1: Yeah, Fiverr is interesting. And, and we're about to put out something with uh, the Oxford uh, Internet Institute around <clears throat> the, uh, um, the digital kind of freelance ecosystem. But in general, like when we step back and we think about the world, we do think. Uh, and again, it kind of goes back to COVID as being the accelerant for a lot of things. And I think uh, eventually we were all going to get to many of these these places. It's just a matter of time and what was ultimately the catalyst. But basically we we were doing work on Fiverr for quite some time and look, it's a new space. We're trying to understand uh, uh, kind of freelancing in general and digital freelancing. Fiverr has executed well on a playbook of creating kind of like an Amazon-like experience, but for freelancing where digital services are bought as a, as a product as opposed to kind of auctioned off and or hourly kind of uh, paid, right? So it's, it's a different experience. It's you know what you're going to get um, and how much you're going to pay for it. Um, and, and that experience, I think, unlocked a lot of uh, or removed a lot of friction, which has created a lot of engagement on that platform. Um, obviously, COVID accelerated the ability to work from home. Um, and it also, a lot of people lost their their jobs and or were working at home and found free time to kind of uh, do something else um, to make a little bit more money. And Fiverr went from 1.9 million uh, active uh, buyers uh, on that platform to 4 million. We actually thought that they would get to that in 2026. Um, they did that in a year. Um, so that accelerated that viewpoint uh, for us. Uh, but again, we think the concept of kind of deconstructing uh, jobs into their core competency is a big deal uh, with Gen Z and, and a little bit beyond that. Uh, and we think, again, people that are design specialists, marketing professionals can focus on that specifically instead of having maybe some of this wasted time in a, um, in a uh, full-time job function. So we think that the decomposed or deconstructed job uh, is now what we think of uh, freelancing. And now you have a platform like Fiverr to execute that mission and and do it successfully. And and again, Fiverr's executing across subscriptions, both for the buyer and the seller. We think beyond some of this is potentially a, uh, again, they announced their subscription for the the sellers, which is around um, uh, kind of building out a, a, call it like a Shopify experience, like a a seller dashboard uh, where you have marketing capabilities and CRM capabilities, analytics, um, that, that kind of freelancer was always underserved. Um, and, and they're doing a lot to, to build that kind of infrastructure for them. So very interesting company, again, founder led, but, but someone that has executed wonderfully, uh, throughout the years. Uh, and, and we're really excited about the future of Fiverr.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So are we. Um, so one of the companies I'm bullish on is Peloton, but y'all have a position in planet fitness. So what is your investment thesis Mm -hmm. there? Yeah, we
1: actually like them both. We don't own Peloton. Um, we don't own Peloton, but it, it's incredibly interesting. We, we do think, um, and, I, and I'll just stick with like Planet and maybe touch like a hint of Peloton uh, from our angle. But for Planet Fitness, we think the network effects that are building here, both when you step back and think about how the world is shaping. I just talked about freelancers, freelancers in generally... General are, are some of these individuals that are trying to work from anywhere. Um, you have the Airbnb economy. You have these type of economies that are existing where you're kind of much more flexible in nature. Now, I do think fitness in general is something that is growing in adoption, growing in, in, in need. Like it, it's, it's, it's kind of a must have in this world, some form of uh, fitness. And to do it in a way that is low friction and low cost and has network effects across the country and, and potentially uh, beyond that, we think is incredibly powerful. Um, so we call them the Walmart of, uh, of uh, fitness. And again, those two are kind of, uh, I wouldn't say opposites of each other. I mean, they, they do probably cater to a different audience. Um, and Planet Fitness does a good job, again, of, of having density across the country where we think, uh, look, I use it personally. When, when I go to Airbnb or something like that, I know there's a Planet Fitness around. So there's this comfort of having a low cost gym membership that's probably everywhere I'm at, um, therefore network effects in my view of a world that is becoming much more uh, uh, free and and, uh, um, mobile in nature. uh, I think that's a powerful position to be in. In addition, again, it goes back to unfortunately COVID, uh, 22% roughly of all gyms went under, uh, and that puts them in a strategically strong position to take some of that market share. Uh, so they've listed 4,000, I think uh, uh, a couple days ago, Chris Rondo was on uh, one of the conferences and he said he thinks 4,000 is now the, the, the low end of where they think they can, they can be um, in the US. Uh, and, and again, on the last earnings call, they announced that they were going to Mexico and with a partnership there. Um, so again, I think from a, from a high level view, um, this kind of more mobile uh, uh 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 kind of consumer market that we live in and world that we live in now and in the future i think plays to their strengths in addition to is the digital aspect i think uh <clears throat> i think the the fact that now all the users on the platform and now have to have the app to check in i think puts them in a in a different place now they have to execute on this i don't know if yet they have that 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 proudness from a tech standpoint to really execute in terms of building real robust consumer engagement platform inside of there. But I do think they have the, the right now, everyone's using it, right? So they have time. People don't come to Planet fitness app necessarily to engage with it from, for, for many reasons other than checking in. But I do think it positions them well to potentially expand that opportunity down the road. That's where like a Peloton has done an incredible job uh, of building kind of this at home. Ultimately, I think fitness will be omnichannel, just like, uh, um, retail, just like many of the other things that happen in life. I think we, we tend to think in, in extremes, but generally speaking, there's somewhere in between. It's not cloud or on-prem, it's hybrid. It's, it's not online or, or brick and mortar, it's both.
0: Um, and I think that fitness will be the exact same thing. So, Yeah, I agree with you. And if we do have, just thinking about it right now, if we do have this sort of hybrid fitness world, working from home part of the time, working in a gym part, of, working out in the gym part of the time, that $10 membership is really enticing for, for the gym membership, because if you're going to buy a home gym, that's going to cost some money. So putting $10 a month towards Planet Fitness makes a lot of sense in a hybrid world, um, just kind of right now. What about Omnis? I don't think I know OmniCell. What does OmniCell do, and, and what's your investment thesis there?
1: Yeah, no, I love it. I get the same reaction every time, um, which is why <laughs> I love it. That's good, yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah, we need more omni-cells in this world. Um, yeah. And so they're a uh, medication management company. Um, so historically, I mean, look, if you go to your, your, your hospital, you'll go on any of the nurse floors. Uh, generally speaking, there'll be med, med, medication management cabinets across that, the, the floors. And generally, it'll be Pixis, which is owned by uh, Beckton Dickinson, or it'll be Omnicell. cell is the leader now. Um, so they have these medication cabinets. That's kind of what they're known for. Um, and 20 years ago, founder-led, Randall Lips is the founder and, and CEO. He's executed his mission-driven, uh, This came from like a personal experience with his family of why he even started doing this and creating cabinets. Those cabinets originally were, uh, for a lack of a better word, dumb in nature. It was a key and you open note thing. And now they're much more uh, biometric and, and really trying to track what's inside of these cabinets and also who's in these cabinets and where they're going, right? Um, So when we think about the core problem in the world around medication or health in general is around health costs and a lot of health costs are wasted uh, across medication errors, um, medication adherence so people not taking their drugs at the same time and and kind of having to relapse and go back into the hospital systems. And again, all these are costs. And I think the summary of all these costs are roughly like 300 to $450 billion a year um where omnicell is targeting kind of a ninety nine point nine um percent uh medication errorless rate uh, in terms of across the system, and their goal is to build out the autonomous pharmacy so they have a system that goes at the center of a uh or the bottom of a hospital system where if you look it up i mean it's their um uh x r two series uh you basically pour 30 something thousands uh, skews into a machine and it automatically sorts and scans all the, the barcodes. Uh, and then essentially across the system, you have the cabinets. So between the centralized pharmacy at the bottom and the decentralized um, medication cabinets across the system, there's that connection between that's the gap that they need to fill somehow. Um, and that would put them into a kind of autonomous pharmacy type of positioning. There's actually a, a whole white paper on, uh, the autonomous pharmacy, similar to how people look at um, Tesla and the and EV space, um, there's uh, there's a lot there. So they're they're right now at like level two, level three in terms of trying to build that out. And again, this is a high quality company. They're fifty something percent market share, highly regulated. It's a duopoly between two uh, vendors, uh, and this company is fo- solely focused on uh, kind of uh, medication management, uh, while their competitor is a conglomerate across multiple things. Um, And that was actually more of an acquisition that uh, Beck and Dickinson did uh, several years back. And it actually opened up the doors for OmniSale. So that's OmniSale. Again, an incredible story. Uh, It's not this hyper growth uh, story, but it's something that grows in the mid-teens to low 20s to uh, low teens at at points in time uh, with continued margin expansion over the last several years. And again, just getting more and more dominant. So we think it's a powerful story that, No one knows.
0: That is very interesting to me. 50% market share, good growth and expanding margins. Um, Right. Yeah, it sounds very... I'm going to look look more into that one. What about Nutanix? What's your investment thesis? Nutanix.
1: Yeah, so Nutanix uh, was a transformation story. I probably should have uh, some of these uh, uh, attached some sort of uh, which pillar it comes from. But um, uh, yeah, Nutanix transformation story, it was really around a transformation that was taking place there uh, over the last two and a half years now. They've gone through a financial transition. They went from um, uh, uh, term licenses, which were all paid and, and cash was generated now to subscription model. Therefore, uh, revenue is is, is uh, recognized over time. That messes up the financials. So you see a, a pretty steep decline in revenue growth uh, as that transition takes place. They also went from selling roughly like 40 to 50% hardware. They used to sell the server boxes um, and that's a commodity. So they actually uh, stopped selling that and started to apply their software to all of the server vendors. So like HPE, Lenovo, Dell, and many others um, and became a 100% software company. And that transition, again, knocked off about 40% of their revenue, but it was uh, zero margin revenue. So gross margins went from about 60 to 80 um, because of it. And then now they're going through the transition of, uh, from an operational standpoint, more so on uh, just efficiency. So they're over the next kind of uh, 12, 18 months, as the subscriptions renew, um, the, the ones that they recently just signed about a year and a half ago, year three is, is the average term length. As those renew, those renewals come at roughly an 80 to 90% less uh, sales and marketing costs to capture that renewal before you had to go out to market and, and really try to win these, these deals again. Um, so again, these will just uh, repeat. And, and again, it'll look and feel much more like a traditional software company with that 80-plus percent software, uh, gross margin. And then we'll start to see those operating margins quickly lever here over the next kind of like 12 to 24 months. Uh, and that's the story. It's uh, From a high level, though, uh, just to, to put some uh, context around the opportunity is the world is becoming more hybrid so that historically they were more of a on-prem company on premise. So they had their stores and servers and compute and and networking all on premise. And that was usually their customer base. Uh, But now what they're doing is trying to connect the companies that are essentially using some on-prem, some in the cloud, some using multi-cloud and really trying to be that central plane uh, to manage all your IT kind of like uh, infrastructure uh, across workloads. Um, And it's really them it's VMware, uh, obviously uh, uh, Amazon is trying to do some of it. Google anthos is trying to do some of it, but they're they're trying to play nice with everybody uh, and look, they have twenty thousand plus clients they're in like eighty percent of the fortune uh, uh, 100 and uh, again they're they're doing incredibly well from a um, transitional standpoint, and we think they're they're just at that inflection point that that we were looking for so
0: yeah, those transitions can look ugly early on in the process, but then when you're coming out of it, the, the fundamentals, if you look at like an, an Adobe or an Intuit or some of these that, that have yeah, already gone go. through the transition, the fundamentals just greatly improve.
1: Yeah, that uh, was Nutanix. Yeah, just to clarify the name, it was Nutanix.
0: Yeah. I, I was saying other examples are Adobe and Intuit. Got it, got it, got that it. That have gone through similar SaaS transitions selling as a subscription. Yeah, Nutanix.
1: Yeah, sure. no, yeah, those are perfect ones.
0: Uh, lastly, what do you, what is Capri and what's your investment thesis there?
1: Yeah. So Capri is the, the, is, uh, Michael Kors, Versace and Jimmy Choo. <clears throat> so they, they changed their name, like maybe like a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago now, time's flying. But, um, at one point it was just Michael Kors. And again, that was like the, uh, the Lily Lemon of their day mm-hmm. for like their day. Um, and they executed wonderfully their high cash flow, and they were generating like $900 million in cash flow just from a single brand. <clears throat> they, their, their core competency was actually they sold too much. Uh, they were too good at selling that they obviously oversaturated the market with Michael Kors, and that led to kind of uh, too much inventory in the market, which led to price reductions, which led to brand uh, kind of destruction in the, in the near term uh, at that point in time. And again, that was like four years ago when that started to happen, or five years ago when that started to happen. And uh, with all that cash flow, they decided to acquire Versace, Gimichu. And here inside of this company, you have a growth story in Versace, which um, is expected to continue to grow its its store footprint. So the average kind of uh, uh, luxury uh, retailer has 300 plus locations. When they acquired Versace, it was 180. Again, uh, uh, historically, they've had a good tendency of, of understanding how to grow these businesses. Um, and that's what they're doing with Versace, uh, today. Now the COVID benefit again, uh, which is strangely enough when they had 70, 80% of their, their fleet basically closed at all times for quite some time, they essentially, uh, left or exited COVID in a much healthier position, not exited COVID cause COVID's still around, but they exited kind of the closures, uh, at much less inventory, much higher gross margin. So here's a company with, gross margins in the mid sixties. So very software, like we're not, we're not that far off. Um, 20% operating margins. Uh, Michael Kors is doing roughly 25, 26% operating margins. Uh, Their average unit per kind of uh, item that they sell has increased dramatically again, because less discounting in the market. Versace is on fire. It's already hitting those 20% operating margins. It was, it was running negative when they acquired it. Um, So combined here, we have a company where, um, Essentially, you have Versace as this growth engine, billion dollars today. They think they can get it to $2 over time through unit growth and uh, productivity within each store. Um, That doesn't seem unreasonable. Uh, Michael Kors is much more of a stability. Just continue to sell less but sell more in terms of uh, margin on each uh, dollar sold. And then the Jimmy Choo part of the business is much smaller. It's really trying to articulate a new vision for Jimmy Choo, but still keep the Cora uh, uh, identity. Uh, Sandra Choi is still the designer there. Uh, they actually all still have the the, the, the original designers. Um, and Donatella of Versace is at Versace, uh, Sandra Choi is at, at Jimmy Choo, and and uh, Michael Kors of Michael Kors. <clears throat> and then again, so when you put all this together, here you have uh, a pretty low... Um, valued company that is actually seeing pretty strong growth underneath the surface uh, expanding margins and by the end of this year uh, will be pretty close to uh, uh, debt neutral cash to debt neutral uh, which again was part of the hesitation maybe like two years ago because when they made this acquisitions uh, when they made the acquisitions, they, they took on some debt and, and given how heavy their cash flow is, they're able to pay this down pretty relatively quickly. And then we think that's going to unlock uh, more acquisitions into the future and truly become this uh, fashion house. Uh, um, and, and, and that's ultimately like the story uh, of, of Capri.
0: A bunch of great stock stories here, Sean. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, and we hope to have you back again soon. This was fantastic. Thank you.